If you want to start a fight, just have a conversation about religion or politics. But if you want to start a knockdown, drag out war, try bringing religion into your politics. And if you've ever tried to do that, you know that people will have an absolute meltdown. I think it's safe to say that few people are able to handle a discussion on that issue. It's a topic that brings with it a lot of volatility. In their minds, the seeming unholy alliance between political power and religious faith is something that is well nigh impossible. And for the Christian, oftentimes it's hard to strike that right balance. And when we get it wrong, and oftentimes Christians do, it honestly causes a boatload of trouble. Which is why what I want to do on this July 4th weekend is look at an exchange that Jesus had with his enemies that reveals, I think, the true relationship and balance between religion and politics. And this dialogue is among the most famous and memorable that Jesus ever had. The NIV simply renders the statement that Jesus makes to the question, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Probably the most famous rendering of this, of course, comes from the King James, which says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And so if you have your Bible this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to Luke's Gospel, chapter 20. And I want to look this morning at the verses that we had the opportunity to read from. As I said before we read the Scripture, this is one of the more important encounters that Jesus had. It's recorded in all three Gospels. And as with all recorded encounters that Jesus had, it's always important to put it in its context. What are the circumstances surrounding what is happening here? Well, Jesus is in the last week of his life. And there has been a growing tension between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. The leaders of Jerusalem, the religious leaders, are trying to destroy Jesus. But they could not find a way to do it. Because as it says at the end of verse 19, the people were absolutely hanging on to his every word. They were soaking it up like a sponge. No doubt Jesus' approval rating was through the roof and the Gallup poll of his day. But that didn't stop the religious leaders from trying to bring him down. And you see that in the first encounter that Jesus had at the beginning of chapter 20. As the religious leaders tried to trap him by asking him if he had a license to preach in the temple and perform miracles. And Jesus gives them an absolutely brilliant answer that they were trapped in. Next, in verse 9, he tells them a story, a parable, about a landowner and that landowner's son. And as you read that, the application of it is so obvious that even they got it. And it made them angrier than ever. Because Jesus knew that he was, they knew rather that Jesus was targeting them. 
We're told in verse 19 that the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest Jesus immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But it says they were afraid of the people. Folks, these guys were no dummies. They knew that Jesus was talking about them, that Jesus was prophesying that the religious leaders would put him to death, and then they would lose their position of spiritual authority. And so when the priests and the scribes hear this, they wanted to kill him. And it's almost as if, and it's almost humorous, that they were deliberately trying to fulfill his prophecy for their murderous intentions proved the truth of what he was saying. But the problem was, the more the people listened to Jesus, the more these men realized that their control was slipping away. And the frustrating thing for them was there was nothing that they could do to stop it. They read the tea leaves. Their consultants told them that this guy is a real problem and that Jesus is much too popular for them to get rid of. They had, as one commentator said, the most dangerous of all angers. They had an impotent rage. They were kind of like a, a pressure cooker and they were getting ready to blow. And it's at this point that one of the religious leaders comes up with what he thinks is a brilliant and unique plan. And the best part of this plan was that they were going to get somebody else to do the dirty work for them. They'd been asking Jesus all kinds of questions. And so now what they decide to do is take a different strategy and they get some poor stooge to go up and ask Jesus a question. And we're told in verse 20 that keeping a close watch on Jesus, they, that is the religious leaders, sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the powers and authorities of the governor. Now the thing that's important to remember is that the Jewish leaders did not have the authority to put Jesus to death. The religious leaders did not have the authority to execute the death penalty. That right was reserved for the Romans who were occupying Israel and Jerusalem at that time. But they reasoned, and rightly so, that if there was a way that they could get Jesus in trouble with the Roman government, Rome would deal with him and solve their problem. And so his enemies seized upon a question related to public policy. They knew that if they couldn't trap Jesus in a religious issue, maybe they could get him with politics. So we're told that the spies questioned him and said, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but Teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And then they ask that all-important question, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now what's interesting is that when these men set up this question, 
when they prefaced their question with a statement, what they were saying was true. Jesus did teach and preach rightly. He showed no partiality. Jesus was an equal opportunity teacher as well as an equal opportunity offender. He had something for everybody. But coming from the lips of these dishonest men, their question is downright offensive. These flattering words were almost obscene. They were pretentious hypocrites. They were a lot like the wicked men of King David's time who were condemned in Psalm 55, 21, where he said his speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. You see, this was a question that was designed to discredit Jesus by catching him between a rock and a hard place. Earlier, Jesus had trapped these men by asking whether the baptism of John was from earth or from heaven. You see that in verse 4 of this chapter. And now what they were trying to do is beat Jesus at his own game, which is pretty rich if you think about it, because they didn't stand a chance. It would be like me going up in a golf match against Tiger Woods, even with his two broken legs. I don't stand a chance. But they asked the question whether or not it was lawful to pay a tax to Caesar. And again, this was an explosive question. Remember, we're talking about politics in the Middle East, which makes politics of our day almost like child's play. And they realized that no matter how Jesus answered, it could be fatal. Israel at this time was under the thumb of the Romans. They were occupying their land, and they were taxed for everything. And on top of that, they were expected to pay the Romans a tribute tax. That tribute tax was a basic tax that the Romans imposed on every Jewish citizen for the privilege of living and working in the Roman Empire. This tax, along with all taxes, was, was not at all popular. It wasn't just for economic reasons that people didn't like this tax. It was also for political and religious reasons. Because essentially what you had is this outside occupying army having control in Israel forcing Jewish citizens to make a payment to Rome for living on their own land. And people hated it. In fact, there were some zealous Israelites who considered the payment of the tribute to be a sin. They said that the Romans were robbing money from them that rightly belonged to God, which is why on occasion the imposition of that tribute stirred up uprisings in Israel. There were times of insurrection. Israel in the first century was really a powder keg. And these men who came to question Jesus knew that if Jesus told the people, look, go ahead and just pay the tax, many of the Jews would consider him a traitor to the cause of his people. 
Remember, they were expecting the Messiah to liberate them from their oppressors, to not to keep, not to keep them under Roman rule. And so if Jesus tells them not to resist the empire and pay the taxes, the masses would turn against him, and he would lose his popular following, and that would be the end of his influence, or so his enemies hoped. But if Jesus told the people to pay their tax, or rather not to pay their tax, and to resist the Romans, as the, again the leaders were probably hoping he would say, he would be guilty of subverting the Roman government. And then what would happen is Jesus would be hauled off before the governor. He would be accused of being a terrorist, an insurrectionist, wanting to overthrow the government, and no doubt he would be put to death. In fact, as you look at the life of Christ, you find that that is the very strategy they later used when they accused Jesus falsely of forbidding people to pay their tribute to Caesar, pay their taxes. In fact, you see that clearly in Luke 23, verse 2. And there was one thing that the Romans refused to tolerate, and that was rebellion. You were not allowed in the first century to question the government. People who spoke out against the Roman government didn't last long. They had a strange way of disappearing at night or having the hammer of Rome crush them. So if a man told others not to pay their taxes, they would be swiftly arrested, they would be in prison, and possibly even put to death. Now at this point, these men must have felt pretty good about their plan. I'm pretty sure they thought that at that poker table they were holding all aces. They thought, finally, finally, we've got Jesus right where we want him. We have him in our crosshairs. He's on the horns of a dilemma. If he tells the people to pay their taxes, he's toast as a popular hero. If he tells them not to, he's a dead man by the Romans. But you know, as so often is the case, there was one flaw in their reasoning. And seeing that, I think, will greatly help us understand the answer that Jesus gave. You see, when these crafty men ask this question, is it lawful to, to pay your taxes to Caesar? They were asking a yes or no question. Either the taxes are lawful or they're not. But the problem was this assumed that things belonged either to Caesar or to God, and not in some way to both. In effect, what these men were doing is demanding a simple, categorical yes or no answer when one doesn't exist. These men were insisting on a total separation between religion and politics. And let me just say right now, that can't be done. They thought that some things are for Caesar and some things are for God. They were saying, Jesus, tell us, do our taxes belong to the government or do they belong to God? And if those men thought that they could trap Jesus with this kind of trick question, they were badly mistaken. 
And I love what Luke tells us in Luke's 23, in verse 23. It says, he saw through their duplicity. Some of your translations say he perceived their craftiness. You know, if you've ever been in a teaching position or a position of authority, you know that some questions are sincere and valid and legitimate, and others are not. And Jesus knew the difference. That word duplicity or craftiness is used elsewhere in the New Testament for the word diabolical. And it's at this point, I, I suspect that there was sort of a dramatic pause. And then Jesus asked, does anyone here have a denarius? Anybody here got a penny, a quarter, a nickel, a dime, a half dollar, or maybe a silver dollar? Does anybody here have a, have a Roman coin? And obviously it was produced. And then he asked the question, whose likeness or whose portrait, whose image and inscription does it have on it? And the obvious answer was Caesar's. And at this point, Jesus had done it again. He had countered their question with another question. Obviously, the likeness on the coin was Caesar's likeness. And it read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So the coin was Caesar's coin. And as a practical matter, whether they wanted to pay any tribute to Caesar or not, as citizens of an empire, as citizens of a kingdom, they were using coins of his realm. And so Rome's money and their use of it proved that they were part of the Roman economy and that Caesar had a claim on their economic lives. And then Jesus gives that dramatic response to that diabolical question when he says, then give back or pay back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Or as the King James renders it, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. And at this point in the contest, it was game, set, match. Jesus had once again silenced his enemies. He'd slipped through the horns of their dilemma. Jesus was saying people can hardly object to giving to Caesar what is rightfully his, and that is paying your taxes. Now again, we're not talking about the worship of Caesar. We're talking about a coin and taxes. That coin was Caesar's realm. His face was on that coin. That coin that was in their pocket was used to pay their wages and buy their food and goods. And so the issue was, how can you possibly object? You're a citizen of that kingdom. Nor could they object to giving God what belonged to God because they claimed to be his servants. And so Jesus, by acknowledging both of these duties a duty to Caesar and a duty to God, the duty to pay your taxes and obey God. Jesus won again another victory over his enemies, and they knew it. And then I love how Luke ends this account. It says they were unable to trap him in what he had said in their public, 
And astonished by his answer, they became silent. Don't you just love it when you give an answer and your enemies just are so befuddled, they say nothing? It's happened on rare occasions, and believe me, it is a feel-good moment. But you know, the answer that Jesus gave is the most important and influential statement ever made on the subject of religion and politics. And that raises a question, and it's a good one. It's one that we need to answer on this 4th of July. And that is, what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God? You see, you and I live, as I, I've mentioned earlier, in two realms, two kingdoms. There's the earthly kingdom and there's the heavenly kingdom. There's the temporal kingdom and there's the eternal kingdom. And we have an obligation to both. And so the overarching question is simply this, what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God? And to get the practical benefit of what Jesus says here, we need to recognize that some things in this life do indeed belong to Caesar. When Jesus tells these first century followers of his to give to the government what it deserves, he's telling them that the government has legitimate prerogatives on your life and mine. Jesus did not come to overthrow the empire and set up an alternative state, presumably a Christian one. Instead, what Jesus did in the first century is he acknowledged that even Caesar has his proper place in earthly authority. He has a political sphere of influence. And he has that authority because that authority has been given him by God. In what clearly is one of the most helpful passages on this issue, Paul in Romans 13:1 says, "Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God." The government has legitimate authority. That authority is not unlimited. But you and I need to acknowledge the divine authority of human government. And I want to suggest that more, this morning that there are four things that God wants us to render or to give to Caesar. And the first is the pain of our taxes. Obviously, this is the most immediate application of what Jesus is saying here. People here were asking, is it right, is it proper for me to pay my taxes to Caesar? And Jesus says, not only is it lawful, it's required. I appreciate the words of one man who wrote in this reply, there is no evasion of the question put to Jesus, but a clear and straightforward declaration that they must pay Caesar tribute and everything due to him as their ruler. Under God's providence, the course of history has been so arranged that they have been brought under Roman domination and through their free use of Caesar's coins, 
they have shown that they acknowledge Caesar as their earthly ruler. And therefore they are under the obligation to pay to Caesar what is due to him. And you know what makes this so extraordinary is that Jesus was talking about the Roman Empire, which was a government as corrupt and cruel in its oppression of people, especially the people of God. But nevertheless, Jesus says, I want you to pay your taxes. I want you to pay what you owe. Paul, as I'm sure you know, said the same thing later in the book of Romans when he said, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. And the application is obvious. You and I have a responsibility as citizens to pay our taxes to the government. Now, I don't like it. I think our government spends money so unwisely and so foolishly, it makes my head want to burst. When I think about the, not not hundreds of thousands, but billions of dollars, not millions, billions of dollars that have been wasted in the last year and a half. My head just wants to explode. And if yours doesn't, let me check your pulse. But you know what? We have a responsibility to pay our taxes. On April 15th, and they get it never a day sooner. My wife, I, I love my wife, but my wife wants things done always early. She says, you know, you know how much we're supposed to pay, and it's maybe in February that we figure that out. Why don't you just pay it? And I say, no, they're not getting a dime or penny of my money any sooner than April 15th. So the first thing we do is we pay our taxes. Second way we render to Caesar what is Caesar's is we pray for our leaders. And I'm not sure that Jesus had this specifically in mind, but clearly later on in the New Testament we are admonished to pray for our government. We're to pray that God would bless our leaders and bless our nation. Praying for our leaders is part of public worship. Do you remember a few months back when we were beginning the book of 1 Timothy and we were in chapter 2? Paul urged Timothy that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. He says this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Praying for government leaders is part of our private as well as public intercession before God. We pray for our president. We pray for the Congress. We pray for the Supreme Court. We're to pray for Governor Cox. We're to pray for state officials. We're to pray for local authorities. Friend, as the people of God, the one thing that we alone can do for our country is to pray. So we pay our taxes, we pray for our leaders, and thirdly, we practice civil obedience. As part of our service to Christ, there is a submission to the laws of our land. 
And again, I don't always like it. But I do it nonetheless. In the Augsburg Confession, it says this, the gospel does not introduce any new laws about the civil state, a state, but commands us to obey the existing laws. Now listen carefully. Whether they were formulated by the heathen or by others. And in this obedience to practice love. Now there are admittedly some exceptions to this. We're not obligated to obey an immoral law. Or anything that would conflict with the revealed will of God. When I worked for the Christian Medical and Dental Associations, as people were going through their residency and they were doing their rotations, there were some doctors who were called upon to perform abortions. And they said they couldn't do it. There are times when you take a stand and you say, I'm not going to take innocent life. Additionally, we can never give up our duty to worship together or to share the gospel. Whatever the government may say, there are times when as a matter of conscience, we have to say what Peter and John said to the Sanhedrin, that we have to obey God rather than men. And so there are times when we take our stand. But I personally think that those are limited, and they're often clearly defined in Scripture. And this is the key. Even under such extraordinary circumstances, we then have to be willing to suffer the penalty for our insubordination with quiet submission. And I would argue in every other situation, we owe Caesar our willing obedience even when we may not agree with what the government is doing. And there's been plenty of that, has there not? J.C. Ryle says, so long as we have liberty to worship God in Christ according to our conscience and to serve Him in the way of His commandments, we may safely submit to many requirements of the state which in our own private opinion we do not thoroughly approve. That's as well said as anything. And please don't ask me for specifics, all right? Because I'm not going to give you an opinion on mask mandates. I'm not going to give you an opinion on some of those things. I have one. But each situation is unique. And I would argue that each situation is a matter of, hear me carefully, personal conscience. I've shared before that there are some things that Connie and I just will not do that others of you feel the liberty to do. And that's fine. That is wonderful. But that doesn't make you more spiritual than Connie or I. Doesn't mean that we're not mature. It's just that we have chosen that this is what we are going to do. Now, the last thing we render to Caesar is participation in public life. We participate in the earthly governments. And from time to time, we will be called to serve our fellow citizens. So we participate. We get involved. 
I think with that goes the responsibility to vote. And let me say without apology, we vote in keeping with biblical principles and our own conscience before God. Some Christians are called to serve God in the military, and that's a wonderful thing. And there are examples of this in the New Testament, like Cornelius, who was a centurion in the Roman army in Acts 10. And when he came to faith, he wasn't told immediately, well, you know, leave the army. But rather to do the work within that sphere of influence that is yours that will bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. I think other Christians are called to hold public office. And they should do so with godliness and integrity. And I don't know about you, but I just... I. I, I it, it breaks my heart. It grieves me when so-called Christians are in government and there's little distinction between their behavior and that of a pagan. I would also say that there are times when, as a church, we have a responsibility to speak out on public issues. And we do so with boldness. We do so with caution. We do so with respect. But we speak out on the issues of poverty, business, education, racism, abortion, marriage, the environment, and many of the other issues that have a moral dimension. And would you please remember that when we're told you can't bring religion into politics, that is absolute nonsense. Because you know what? All laws are the legislation of someone's morality, right? And it might have be, well be the morals and values of the Scriptures. And so as a church and as individual Christians, we have the freedom to be involved in pursuing political solutions to these problems. And again, this demands caution. The church is not responsible for the control of government as if politics were the ultimate prize. Because you know what? There is not. There is not a political solution to social problems when those underlying problems are spiritual problems. Now, admittedly, the government can keep a lid on some of those things, and they need to. But the solutions to the problems of our country are not going to be found in politicians. I well remember 17 years ago when my son became a police officer. And I was so proud of him and continue to be so. But I can still remember when he was at the academy, I told him, I said, David, just remember this. All of the problems there in North Tulsa are spiritual. And that's where the solution is going to come from as Christians go in there and become the salt and the light. As a police officer, he's not going to solve the problems of North Tulsa. And you probably can imagine that North Tulsa is where the most crime takes place. We have a responsibility to see that government keeps a lid on problems and that they promote the good. But good government has its place in the plan of God. And our primary task as a church is not to gain more political influence by legislating a Christian society, 
Rather, we use the spiritual instruments of prayer and the Word of God and deeds of mercy to win people's hearts and minds with the love of Christ. And so here's what I'm saying. On this July 4th weekend, the basic principles that Christians need to follow in the religion of their politics is you need to pay your taxes. You need to pray for our leaders. You need to practice civil obedience. And you need to participate in public life according to your particular calling from God. Now, if those are the things that belong to Caesar, what are the things that belong to God? And I'm going to make this easy. And I'm going to make this short. Because I've got a plane to catch. You know what the answer is? Everything. Everything belongs to God. Paul in Romans 11 says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him alone be glory forever and ever. Amen. So what do we do? Well, we pay our taxes. We pray for our leaders. We practice civil obedience. And we participate in public life. And we do it all for the glory of God. And friend, this really is at the heart of the answer that Jesus gave. And, and rather than separating our political life from our religious life, Jesus claimed that even politics ought to be part of a true religion. As everything is under the, the, the lordship, as it were, of God. Did you notice, and it's so easily overlooked, did you notice that Jesus says, pay tribute to Caesar, render, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God? Did you notice that the two are connected not with a but, but rather an and? That's important. So everything, everything in your life and mine comes under the authority of God. Our homes belong to God. Our time belongs to God. Our walk belongs to God. Our money belongs to God. Our bodies belong to God. Our eyes, ears, and hands are instruments to be used in the service of God. And as we see needs around us and listen to God's voice and reach out with the compassion of Christ and show it to others, we're demonstrating, yes, we belong to two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And we're called to exercise obedience in both realms. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this very important reminder on this July 4th weekend. I pray that the people who have heard this message whether online or whether they were here this morning, would realize that we have been called to be good citizens, obedient citizens, people who pay our taxes and pray for our leaders and participate in government and obey the laws of the land. Help us not to be rebels. Help us to be Christ followers. 
Help us to be people who will be known by our love and by our commitment to a life of purity and godliness. Seal these truths, we pray to our heart, for we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people agreed and said, amen.